Amen. Church, you may have a seat. My name is Matthew. I mean, Braden. I'm just, I'm just kidding. My name is Braden. I'm our student 1825 pastor at our Delaware location. It's great to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, I've been here on some Sunday mornings a few times, and I always enjoy getting to go around our other campuses on Sundays and uh, get to live out what we say, our church uh, in multiple locations. Every time I get to go to another one of our campuses, I have dear friends at each one and get to see them, get to spend time with them, and uh, it's just been uh, just an amazing thing uh, here at LifePoint. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about me for those of you who are like, I don't even know this guy. Uh, I, uh, again, as I said, my name is Braden. I do work at our Delaware campus, but among those things, uh, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. I actually have a picture of me and my girls, uh, my wife and my twin daughters. Uh, they're actually here today. Uh, so anybody who's at back serving at nine o'clock and juniors, it's good. Uh, uh, this is my daughter, Rowan, uh, that I'm holding. And then my other daughter, Naomi, that my wife is holding. My wife's name is Hannah. And uh, our family, uh, I love, it's exciting, but uh, there's a lot of girls in our family, and so we decided we were going to grow our family just a little bit more, and it worked out that we're actually having a boy. He's going to be born uh, right, hopefully, uh, after Christmas uh, sometime. Uh, he's due in January, uh, his beautiful side profile. Doesn't he look a lot like me, guys? Come on, come on. Look at those lips and that little nose up top. Anyway, if you don't know how to read sonograms, that's okay, me either. Uh, they're having, they were like showing me, and I was, they're like, do you see it? And I'm like, maybe, uh, but that, we just got this picture last week, and so it's exciting. If you're a guest with us here this morning, we're so glad you're here. Uh, I'd like to direct your attention to lpguest.com, uh, and if you go there, what you'll find uh, there this morning as a guest is all sorts of resources for you, our message notes, uh, a bunch of links to our website, but the main thing I want to direct you to here this morning is the guest information card. Uh, again, uh, if you're new, second time, third time, maybe you've never filled out a guest information card before and you'd like to do that, uh, please go on there. And what you're doing is you're not signing up for email chains or anything like that, but you're telling us a little bit about what you're interested in here so we can get you meaningfully connected in the quickest way possible. And so we would love to do that. If you take 60, 90 seconds, you could do that now uh, or before you leave today. And at the bottom of our guest information card, it will have uh, a list of ministries that you can select from. We'll donate $5, your honor, uh, no strings attached, just to say thank you for being here and doing that uh, with us this morning. If you have your Bible, you can go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be at today. We're going to start in verse 9. We're continuing on in our series this morning uh, about love's pure light, about Jesus bringing hope and joy and peace and faith. This is our Christmas series, and what we're doing is essentially we're looking at the Advent lighting of the candles, right? The four Sundays leading into Christmas is what we know as the Advent season, and many of you probably have plenty of Advent calendars or Advent candles around your house. You probably have seen uh, them at the grocery stores, right? Chocolate Advent calendars, bacon Advent calendars, coffee Advent calendars, and all of that good stuff, right? You just open it up every day, and there's this new surprise, and on the Sundays leading into Christmas, we call this the Advent season, there's uh, in tradition the lighting of each of these candles uh, week by week, and so representing uh, some traditions, different representing, but what we've been looking at is hope, joy, peace, and faith. 
that is what Jesus brings. And actually, Christians have not just been doing this for, for a recent time or uh, in recent history. They've been doing it for centuries. And it actually stems from the Hanukkah tradition uh, where uh, there's this festival that the Jews would celebrate. So anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? Let's nerd out for a moment together. Alexander the Great conquers the known world before Rome, and he's pushing into India. He turns back around. He and his army are heading back home, and Alexander the Great dies. And then he splits his kingdom into four territories. This guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, great name for your next kid, by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes takes over this region in which houses Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, this is where the Jews worship. This is where the temple is. And what he does is he comes in and he says, you guys are no longer allowed to do the things that you used to do. You can't worship God in the way that you want. You can't do things like this uh, that you're doing in the Jewish temple. And what he does is he goes in, he slaughters a pig and desecrates the temple. Pigs were known as unclean animals to the Jews. And so that's what he does. Instead of a lamb sacrifice, what he does is he scatters Uh, pig blood all over the temple and essentially says, you guys aren't allowed to worship here anymore. And so there's this revolt called the Maccabean revolt. Uh, Maccabee means hammer. That's this guy's name, Judas Maccabeus. He's got a great strong name for a rebellion. He comes and he pushes back against Antiochus Epiphanes armies and uh, all of these things. And he takes the temple back. They cleanse the temple and they begin to light the Hanukkah candles. And so the tradition goes uh, is that they lit these candles and they didn't have enough oil for it to stay lit very long. But miraculously, these candles stayed lit for some time. And so this tradition goes way back, even centuries before Christ came, that we light these candles and these candles are representative of something, is that there is light that pierces the darkness Ultimately, what the Jews didn't know at that time is that this uh, Hanukkah festival would be pointing to Christ coming one day, that Jesus would be the light that pierced the darkness. You go read all of the New Testament, starting in John chapter 1, right? It talks about Jesus being the light, and then you go read in 1 John, Jesus is the light, Jesus is the light, Jesus is the light. And ultimately, what we're going to see, and especially today, is that Jesus comes and pierces the darkness so that we might know him the light of the world coming in and changing everything. And so this is what we celebrate at the lighting of the candles. Also, uh, as we jump into Colossians 1, I want to kind of give us a historical overview of that as well, because I think knowing the history of where all of these things come from are really going to help us today in understanding Colossians 1, 9 through 14. So Paul is writing to this church in a city called Colossae, and he's in prison. And he's a church planter. He's formerly ravaging the church, killing Christians. He falls in love with Jesus. Jesus changes his life, pierces the darkness in his life, and he begins to plant churches. And he hears of this church called Colossae, and he's, uh, even though he doesn't plant it, he decides that he's going to send a letter. As Paul is on his planting journey, he meets this guy named Epaphras. Epaphras actually is the one who plants Colossae. He plants uh, and helps at Laodicea and Hierapolis. And what he hears at Colossae is that there's false teachings going on, false doctrines being spread around the church. And you're like, well, what was the false teaching? What, the ha- what was happening was is these false teachers were coming in and saying, hey, look, you need to buffet your body. You need to be asceticists, right? You need to deny yourself all of these things, make yourself suffer, and follow all of these traditions so that you might have life change or salvation. 
And what we see is that Paul is writing this letter to set the record straight. He's not saying change will lead to Christ. He's saying, no, it's only Christ and only Christ will lead to change. What we'll see in Colossians chapter 2 is that the whole point of this letter is to say, hey, you don't have to buffet your bodies anymore like that. You don't have to follow these traditions, these new moon festivals and all of these things or the Sabbath things. He says, hey, look at Jesus who died on the cross. He says he took your sins and nailed them to the cross so that you might be saved and justified. And this is the message that Paul teaches the Colossians. Christ leads to change. Change does not lead to Christ. Doesn't that sound like the cultural moment we're in, though? That everything has a 10-step plan on how to have hope, joy, peace, and all of these things that we're talking about over this Christmas season. Hey, how about you read this book here, go do this seminar there, watch that master class over yonder, right? Like, if you want to have hope and joy and peace, you need to get up at 4 a.m., walk on the treadmill while doing active meditation, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and like, kind of once you get your life together, now you're going to have hope and joy and peace. The people teaching the Colossians They were missing the substance of the tradition. Ultimately, like we said, Hanukkah pointed to Jesus. Sabbath pointed to Jesus. New moon festivals pointed to Jesus, but they were missing it. And we see the same thing, right? Buffet your body. Miss the the symbolism of the tradition for the tradition itself. We think about the Christmas season. Now, what happens? It has become more about... Uh, following these traditions than it is the substance of Jesus. Black Friday, what do we do? We go max out our credit cards to buy everyone gifts. What else do we do? Hymns that we sing, Silent Night, Angels We've Heard on High have now just become entertainment on Christmas radio stations. What happens on uh, those Christmas Eve dinners is more debauchery than it is the celebration of Jesus' birth. And I'm not saying everyone does that. I'm just saying in this cultural moment that we live in, and it sounds a lot like we're living in Colossae, that there are a lot of people pushing a lot of different things and say, hey, look, miss the substance of the tradition for tradition's sake. What we'll ultimately see in Colossians 1, 9 through 14 is this, is that the joy of Jesus the King will lead to change. The joy of Jesus the King will lead to change. There's no amount of traditions you can follow that are going to change you, that make you better. There's no amount of discipline that's going to make you better. And I believe in discipline. I believe in tradition. I think those are great things. But it is only joy from Jesus the King, having joy in him, that will change your life. Let's pray before we jump into the reading of the word of God. Father, we love you. We come before you and humbly ask that today, Father, that you would till up the soils of our heart. Father, that today that your word would take deep root and it would produce 30, 60, and 100-fold as your word has appointed. Father, today, as the old prayer goes, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? All for the sake of your Son, who's our Savior. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9, we'll go through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened 
with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. If you're an underline or note taker, underline or circle patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And if you're, again, underliner, just go ahead and underline out the rest of this passage. The dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin, right? Joy from Jesus the king will lead to change. We see that right there, patience with joy, kingdom of the beloved son, redemption and forgiveness. I think what Paul is doing, I love this passage, by the way. I think, it's, I think it's a phenomenal passage. But what we see Paul doing, starting in verse 9, working to verse 14, is he's kind of listing out his subpoints, all working to this moment in verse 14. He says, in Christ, in which you have redemption and forgiveness of sin. I think that's the main point, actually, of the entire book. But definitely, I think it's the main point of this passage, of this paragraph that you have forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ the King. And what's happening is Paul is working these subpoints down. Typically in a sermon, what we would do is we would give you the main point and then we would work our subpoints down. But what Paul does is he does it in verse, subpoints all the way to one big point. So today, what we're gonna do is, is it's a little unconventional. We're gonna actually walk line by line through this, but we're gonna start with verse 14, working back through his subpoints. Because the main thing that you have to know today is that Jesus is the redeemer and the forgiver of sins. And so that's the first thing we see in verse 14. In whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. What we get in this moment right now is Paul saying essentially that Easter and Christmas is codependent on one another. And you're like, what are you talking about? This is our Christmas series, right? Why are we talking about Easter? What happens is that Jesus is perfectly born so he can perfectly go to the cross. Jesus is perfectly born so that he could perfectly go to the cross. You can't have the cross without Christmas. You can't have joy without the perfect son of God coming from heaven to earth. The whole point of his birth was this, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 21 and 23. Call him Jesus, the angel says, because he is going to save his people from their sins. Verse 23, they say his title will be Emmanuel which means God with us. The point of Jesus' birth is so that Jesus will go and die on the cross 33 years later. He is perfectly born. And this is the first part of the gospel, that God would step out of holy eternity, wrap on flesh, 100% God, wrapping on 100% humanity and the likeness of man being born of a virgin. This is important. The fact that Jesus was born of miraculous means and not having an earthly father means that he is no longer tainted by sin. If God causes a miraculous birth from this woman named Mary, Jesus will not be tainted by sin. It has to happen this way. So Jesus comes, he's perfectly born, lives a perfect life, fulfills all 613 Levitical laws, every tradition, every Sabbath, every new moon, every Hanukkah, everything he fulfills, every prophecy, tradition, and law. In 33 years, and all working to this moment where he will save his people from their sins as God with us. He takes on the sin of the world, your sin, my sin. And you're like, whoa, dude, like, 
what sin, right? Like, I'm not that bad. I think what the scriptures teaches us is that we are all that bad, that we all need a savior. You're like, well, look, man, like I haven't really done like that, that much bad stuff in my life. The scriptures would say, and the breaking of the smallest commandment. If you've ever told a white lie, the breaking of the smallest commandment makes us wholly liable to the judgment of a holy God because we are unholy. We're unfaithful. And it is only because of what Jesus does on the cross, setting aside our sin and nailing it to it, that we can be forgiven. And so Jesus does. He comes, he's born, lives a perfect life, goes perfectly to the cross as the Lamb of God puts the sin of us on his shoulders and is slaughtered. And then he would go to the grave and three days later he would raise again so that we might have life in his resurrection. Easter and Christmas are co-dependent on one another. And then it says, Jesus now is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf. And it says, if you have sin, now you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That if you come before him and say, Lord, forgive me, you are now forgiven that you can have life and life in his name. And one day he's going to return to us and bring the inheritance. We'll get there. I don't want to jump the gun. But he's going to come back for his people. He's coming back. This is the news that gives us joy. Joy from Jesus the King will change your life. That truth that Jesus is the redeemer, forgiver of sins will change everything. I don't mean to make light of the cross or the birth of Jesus, but what does this word redeemed mean, right? If you go to the store with a coupon, right? You have a coupon, it says uh, one free box of Fruity Pebbles, and you bring that coupon to the store, and what you're gonna do is you're gonna get your basket or whatever you, whatever you do, you're gonna walk to the aisle with the cereal, you're gonna grab the box of Fruity Pebbles, or as my kids call it, special dino cereal, because we buy the off-brand, it's got a dinosaur on it, and you're gonna walk to the cashier, or if you're at Walmart, no cashier, you're gonna self-check out because that's the only lanes they have open, and you're gonna go there, and you're gonna give them or scan this coupon and exchange or redeem it. You're going to give it to the person or the robot, and they're gonna give you in return a free box of Fruity Pebbles. Again, I don't mean to make light of the cross and the birth of Jesus, but what happens at his birth and his death is that God comes, and it says now we have redemption. He's redeemed his perfect life so that now we might have life in him. This brings the joy. So we make it to verse 13. Remember, we're starting 14. We're going to work back through Paul's subpoints now. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transfer, uh, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The fact that not only is God, God come to earth to be God with us, he has come to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament by being the king, the king that we needed. Jesus is a good and gracious king. This is the one we need, right? We look at the cultural moment that we're in, and we've got a million bad politicians running the world, and yet now we have a heavenly king, the best politician ever, running everything, doing everything, and holding all of creation together. Jesus comes, and he fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament, that there would be a king that would come from the line of David and reign forever. In Matthew and Luke, we get the story of Jesus' birth, and we also get the genealogy of Jesus' birth. 
They track down in one of those texts uh, his earthly father, Joseph, the one who essentially uh, has nothing to do with Jesus being born but would raise him as his own son. What he does is that author, he tracks down Joseph's lineage, and on paper, Jesus, the, the earthly son of Joseph, would be heir to a Davidic throne. But then we see it through Mary as well. And as the other author writes, he writes all the way down through Mary's lineage, and she's also from King David. He is the rightful, earthly, Davidic king that will reign forever. But more than that, he is the rightful son of heaven that will reign in eternity forever. This is good news. This is something that brings us great joy. You go back to the heralding of the Christmas story, right? What happens is the angels come to the shepherds watching the fields and their flocks by night, right? And we see this moment where the angels come and they say, good tidings of great, of great joy, good news, peace on earth. And what they do is they herald the fact that the king has come to lowly shepherds. These men who are the, the lowest of the low in their society, I have a point by, for this, by the way. He comes, they come and they say, hey, look, the king is born. He's going to save the people from their sins. Go and worship to the lowest of the Jewish society. They would have been ritualistically unclean all the time. They would have no hope to even come close to the standard in which Judaism had for cleanliness and worship and all of these things. And yet what happens is God says, no, go and worship the new king. That has come. And then we see on the other side, I know we always have the wise men in the Christmas story. I don't think they quite make it there by the time that Jesus is born. They make it there after. What happens is they say, hey, uh, these, per these likely Persian astrologers are looking at the stars. They see this great star in the sky, which, by the way, carries over from our exile series in Daniel. By the way, Daniel comes and he preaches the good news to Darius and Nebuchadnezzar and all these things. And so the, the Jewish God is known now in Persia and media. Right, And so now there's these Persian media and astrologers that we call wise men, and it is heralded in the stars that a new king is coming. And so they travel from where they are, wherever they're from, and they get to Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, we need to worship this king. God has come now to the lowest and the highest of society, and he says, no matter if you're Jew or Greek, I will be king for all. There's no dividing lines in my kingdom. He says, everybody can come and everybody can follow this good and gracious king. And what happens is when you follow this good and this gracious king, you're taken out of one kingdom that was dark and brought into this kingdom. And first Peter, it says, is marvelous in light. That the light has pierced the darkness in our souls. And we're a part of a new kingdom. Our pastor at Delaware, his name's Cale. He and I were talking this week, and he was talking about the darkness that we once lived in before transferred into this kingdom of light. And many of us know it well. Not just spiritual darkness, financial darkness, relational darkness, emotional darkness, mental darkness, sometimes even often physical darkness we live in. And anyone who knows the joy of Jesus the king knows how amazing it is to go from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the joy that will lead to change. Jesus, the redeemer, forgiver of our sins, yet Jesus, the good and gracious king who transfers us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. We move on to verse 12. Verse 12 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
inheritance. We talked about this a little bit last week. The hope that we have one day that is going to become sight is that God has brought us inheritance. And I don't know how deep you guys got into 1 Peter 3 and 4 here at this campus, but I just want to briefly, if you missed last week, I want to briefly share kind of what we shared last week. There's this hope and this inheritance. There's joy from this inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's he's caused us to be born again to live uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God brought us unto himself and is one day going to bring himself back to us with an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. And you're like, what do those words mean? I wrote a few definitions down for you this morning. An imperishable inheritance. It does not break, mold, or decay. It is timeless and does not depend on anyone else but Jesus. It is guaranteed. We cannot work hard enough for it, and the Father gives it to us freely, undefiled. It is this. It is pure, untainted by our sin. It is perfect. Even in the midst of our impurity here, our sinful, diseased hearts here, God calls eternity to us, and we long for it because it is perfect, and it is the way it was meant to be. It is pure with God, and we long for that. It is an unfading inheritance. It does not lose its brightness, vitality, or strength. It is always and will always be full of the light of God. It will be necessary for all. We need it. We need it to be restored and made right. If we are believers, this is the hope that we have, and it will never lose its power. This is the inheritance that we have kept safe for us in heaven. And one day when Jesus returns, what's going to happen is he's going to bring his new kingdom, his new heavens, and his new earth, and his new Jerusalem. There's no need for a temple anymore. There's no need for a sun or the lighting of candles because God will be the light in the city for us. And what's going to happen, it says we're going to walk in. There's going to be trees and rivers. It's going to be amazing. But I think the more important thing is this, is that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and God will make all things right and there will be no more tears and no more pain is what the scripture said. And so we have an inheritance and this brings joy. The joy of Jesus the King will lead to change and this is a part of it. Now that we're saturated in the joy of Jesus, redeemed and forgiven by Jesus, transferred from darkness to light, know that we have a hope laid for us in heaven. It begins to seep in and change everything about us. Verse 11, Paul would say, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Like I said, Paul is working to his main point that we're forgiven. Nothing about your life will change until that changes, by the way. None of it. You can't have any hope to live in strength, endurance, patience, or joy until Jesus comes in and he takes you from darkness and into light. There's no hope for it. Back in our Psalm series, I think it was last summer, our Psalm series, what we talked about in one of those is in Psalm chapter 1, it says, blessed is the man. That word blessed in the original language means uh, blissful or happiness incomplete, what we would also call joy, right? We know that joy is happiness incompletion, bliss, the state of blissfulness. 
And he says, happy is the man, happy in completeness, joyful is the man, blissful is the man, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in his sinful ways anymore. But it says he delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by a stream of water. In his season, he bears fruit. His leaves do not wither. And in everything he does, he prospers. This is no prosperity preaching because what ultimately we're going to see from King David is that King David goes through a myriad of bad things and yet still praises and worships like this. What we're going to see is this, is that with the Lord, happiness and completion comes our way. Or you could say it this way. In the Lord, joy comes our way. says that when we are in him, delighting in him, meditating in him, says we are now like a tree planted by water. I don't know if any of you are agriculturalists in the room. I'm not. But what I do know is that plants need a water source to live. Imagine a strong tree planted by a river. It has everything it needs, all of its nutrients, and it grows And it says that his leaves don't wither. In its season, it bears fruit. And everything he does, he prospers. That is what the joyful man looks like. He's planted by the water source, God. And no matter the season, no matter the struggle, the difficulty, what we see is Paul is writing from prison here. So it's not that we get to live this now amazing, perfect life. There's still going to be struggle, and there's still going to be suffering, and there's still going to be hardship. But what happens is, is the perspective shifts. Is that when we're planted next to the water source, God himself, it says that we now have joy, even in the midst of the circumstances and the trial and the suffering, just as Paul did. Writing from prison, he writes, given endurance and patience with joy. Once God comes in, everything is saturated in him, and it begins to change how we live. And there's an overflow. It's not just endurance and patience and strength and joy that does nothing. There's an overflow out. We finish with verses 9 through 11. And so from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says this hope, this joy that comes in and it sets deep begins to flow out. So then walk worthy. So then walk as you have been changed. And what does this look like? It's twofold as we begin to close. It's twofold. It's fruit of every good work, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Remember back to where Colossae was, right? They're in this cultural moment. They say, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this to be forgiven. Paul's flipping that on its head. He says, no, 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 you're forgiven, and then all these good things then flow out of you. You don't miss the substance for the tradition. He says, no, Christ is the substance, and then it leads out of that, and the two things it leads to is fruit and every good work. Think about it. When you serve, you share the gospel, pray with others, give, what do you typically feel like afterwards? For me, it's not regret. For me, it's not unhappiness. It always feels the the moments and the accompaniment of joy. Why? Because I'm now fulfilling my intended design and purpose, restored to the Redeemer, giving, sharing the gospel, praying, serving. Never regretted it once. 
and typically feel better once I am doing those things. The second, increasing in the knowledge of God. This comes through knowing him through his word, right? We go back to Psalm 1 where we just were. It says, blessed is a man who delights in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Think about that for a moment. When you come in on a Sunday morning and you've learned something you've never learned before, how much joy then does that bring? How much life change does that bring? Increasing in the knowledge of God. I've never regretted it once. When you're praying with other believers and and you experience God through prayer, it's another means in which we talk and increase in the knowledge of God, right? We talk with him and we experience him in prayer. And often, even in the moments of sadness and weeping in prayer, on the backside, what is the moment and and the feeling accompanied with it? Joy. When you jump into a life group and you have others begin to pour into your life and in community, what happens? Is it regret? Or is it, man, I'm just glad I'm here. Man, you don't know how much that means to me. You will never regret growing with God more, increasing in the knowledge of God more. It's not spiritual disciplines that lead to change. It's a changed life that begin to flow out into these disciplines in prayer and reading God's word and community. I'd ask that you bow your heads with me for just a moment and think with me and pray with me. We've been saying it this entire day. Joy from Jesus the King leads to change. It is because forgiveness that we have joy. We have a kingdom we belong to now, an inheritance in which God holds in heaven for us. When we're changed, the joy begins to fill our lives and it carries over into everything else. It causes strength, endurance with all joy, and it overflows into good works and knowing God more. So, I address two different things. If you know Jesus, you've had an encounter with Jesus, have been saved by Jesus, and your life isn't quite matching up to Colossians 1, 9 through 14. What is it that God is asking you to tweak? Have you been trying the self-help? Again, those are not bad, but have you been trying to change everything, to make yourself clean and right before Jesus? Or can you just go today, get on your knees before the king that is good and gracious and ask him to change it for you? Show you what to do. Maybe you've been lacking in joy in this season. I know this Christmas season is not always joyful for everyone. For many, it's presents and family. For others, it's the memory of the family member who's not there with you this year. And you've had a hard time experiencing the joy that comes from Jesus. You've started to dip back into the darkness rather than run into the light. Would you stop going back and would you seek him for the comfort and the joy and the peace in which he promises? Prayer, reading God's word, community, maybe there's some shifts and changes God's asking you to make in your life. My encouragement is, would you run back to the one who saved you at first and run back to the hope in which you had? Second group, maybe you've never experienced Jesus in the way that we've talked about today. The good, gracious, redeeming, forgiving King. Paul, the writer of this book, writes in another letter to another church. He says, today is the day 
of salvation. He says, it's freely offered to you. You can take it. It's a free gift of God. You can know him and relationship and joy today. And I promise you, you will never regret knowing him. We just talked about that moment of increasing in knowledge of God. I've never regretted coming to church, sitting under teaching. I've never regretted sitting in his word and reading more about his nature and his character and seeing how good he truly is. You can come to know him today. I'm gonna pray for us. If after this service, you need to talk with someone about salvation, maybe some life change that needs to happen. Maybe you know God and some things need to shift. Our Next Steps team is gonna be available. But I encourage you during this next song, would you pray, would you contemplate those things? Father, we love you. We give you all glory. We give you all honor for you are the only one worthy of it all. Father, we ask that you would come and you would move in us today. God, we ask that you would change us, give us the joy in which you offer. Before we sing this next song, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together and I can't think of a better way to worship than this. In the taking of the Lord's Supper, we're gonna to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to do that. There's communion elements around you if you're gluten-free. There's some at the back of the auditorium. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna take the supper with one another. This is an act of worship. It's an act of reverence. It's an expression of hope and joy. I'm gonna read this passage for you. I'll explain it briefly, and then we'll take the supper. It says, for I received from the Lord what... I also delivered to you that the uh, Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after supper, supper, he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So to eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. I'll talk about that last sentence there for just a moment. What we would say here at LifePoint for, for anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, we, we, we would love for you to do anything with us except for this one thing. And here's why. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, so you, and you say, hey, I'm not a believer. I'm just checking this thing out. Like, I'm just curious. What happens is when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is, is Jesus' body is broken for me. Jesus' blood was poured out to forgive my sins. And if you don't have a relationship with him, ultimately that's not true of your life. And the taking of the Lord's Supper would be a lie for you. Now, if you've made the decision to follow Jesus today, I can't think of a better way than to start your relationship with him than remembering his body broken and his blood poured out. What happens is Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples. He looks at him. He says, this is my body broken. And I'm sure none of them have had this moment where they've seen Jesus' body broken yet. They're just used to having this Passover meal. It has a lot of meaning, but they don't quite know what it means body broken. What are you talking about? Jesus, Jesus would then say blood poured out for your sins to be forgiven. What 
happens is about 12 or so hours later, Jesus would go to the cross and they would get a real vivid, visceral image that when Jesus began to pull the bread apart, he says, my body broken. As Jesus' body is ripped with whips, stabbed with spears, nailed to a cross, I'm sure the moment in which they'd have anytime they had bread after that is real and it's heavy with memory. Body broken, blood poured for the forgiveness of their sins as they watch the Savior's blood flow to the ground. Unrecognizable, stained and red. That anytime they would drink, they would, I would find it hard pressed that they wouldn't be able to get that out of their minds. And so as we take the supper today, know Jesus' body broken for you blood poured for you. It was under the weight of our sins as we bite through the bread, under the weight of our sins that crushed our Savior, but then we taste the sweetness of the juice, the grape wine, and oh, how sweet the blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So as we go to this moment, I want you to take and peel back that first layer on top, take the bread. We'll read this once more. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Likewise, you can pull now that second tab back. We're going to take the cup, and he says, this is the cup that is the new covenant in my blood. Other spots says, and for your forgiveness, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Oh, Jesus, how sweet the blood. That your forgiveness is so sweet. Your redemption is so sweet. God, I just ask that you would move in this time. Speak to us in this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name.